Hello, Great Minds. It's Friday, and that still means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as we enter one of my favorite times of the year, the DGMH bonus season, and a nasty little episode on one of my favorite artists, the father of the political cartoon, Thomas Nast. So nasty is a word. Why no shit, Mr. DGMH? It means highly unpleasant. Honestly, I think many people are quite nasty. Hell, today's subject was a little nasty himself, but let's get one thing out of the way. Nasty does not come from the name of today's subject, Thomas Nast. In fact, much of what we discuss in relation to the father of the political cartoon, a personal hero of mine, will be pretty much a mix of myth and reality. So welcome to the show, everyone, what will be the first of several short bonus episodes to Season 2 that didn't quite fit in the regular season. Today we are covering one of my favorite great minds in history, the man who made Santa fat and jolly, the father of the modern political cartoon, and a man who was connected with a pantheon of American greats that surpasses just about everyone else. Today we are going to take a quick look at the life of Thomas Nast. A quick disclaimer, Thomas Nast is an artist a mastermind of political satire, a man whose pictures really were worth a thousand words. But it's also one of those episodes where I kind of need to talk about art a little bit without actually being able to show you the art. So be sure to check out the show on Facebook and Instagram to see some deeper dives into some of Thomas Nast's greatest political cartoons. For today, we will just look at the man himself. And to quench my thirst, I am enjoying a delightful Spanish white sangria. And that will already make sense to anyone who knows of Thomas Nast's greatest accomplishment. So let's get to it. Today we examine the life of a man whose life spans across some of the most dynamic and defining moments in U.S. history. From the Civil War to the rise of the American Empire, Thomas Nast carved out his own little niche in American history. So who is Tommy Nast? Well, first, let me say this. Over the past six years, I have educated more than 800 students at the high school level and hundreds more at the local community college. I have made sure to always emphasize the subject and contributions of Thomas Nast. If that trend continues, by the end of my career, I will have shared this piece of history with thousands of young learners. His art is pretty famous, but his story is much lesser known. Many students around the country, even the world, look at his art and likely just stop there, maybe never knowing that it was his art in the first place. I know that each year I will always come back to using his numerous political cartoons to teach nearly countless concepts. Honestly, as far as subjects on this show go, Nast is quite special to me. I'm not sure why political cartoons bring me so much joy, why they excite my passion for history, but they really fucking do. And yet many listeners that don't consider themselves historians, history buffs, or whatever are probably still asking the question, who the hell is Thomas Nast? I'll tell you, but first... It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. As big a fan as I am of Thomas Nast's artwork, I never really dove too deep into his backstory. Aside from the stuff tied to Tweed, a man we will discuss later. And I haven't come across a better historian than Fiona Deans Holleran to examine this topic. In her Nast biography, she notes, quote, For Nast, the American dream was a tangible fact and I would say that his rise and success certainly reinforced this point. Born in the Rhineland of Germany in 1840, his father, a somewhat accomplished trombonist, was a little too politically outspoken, and 1848 Germany was certainly not the best place for that. 
as a wave of liberal revolution swept through Europe faster than the Black Death. At odds with the Bavarian government, Joseph Nast had his wife and children sent to Paris, where they boarded a ship bound for New York City. And it was there that young Thomas Nast would grow up. Holleran notes, quote, Nast knew more of the New York streets than he cared to admit, but the streets forged him. In his work as an artist and a political analyst, Nast's New York remained a potent force throughout his life. As a German immigrant to America in the second half of the 19th century, Thomas Nast would essentially grow alongside the city itself, as the Industrial Revolution came to fruition. To fruition? Fuck that word. As the Industrial Revolution was realized. From his childhood, it was clear that traditional schooling wasn't for him, and art seemed to be our young Thomas's passion. He trained with German-American artist Theodore Kaufman, who took part in the Dresden Revolution of 1848, the very wave of revolutions that spirited Thomas out of Germany into America, one might say his destiny. Kaufman was famous for his portraits, especially his later works of Civil War-era figures, including U.S. Senator Hiram Revels, the first African-American member of the U.S. Congress. In 1856, Nast began his artistic career working with Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper. In 1859, Nast had his first of what would be many drawings appear in Harper's Weekly magazine, which was one of the greatest producers of political cartoons in U.S. history, in my opinion only second to Puck magazine. He briefly took a position at New York Illustrated News and spent the next couple of years working in Europe illustrating key sporting events and issues of the day. He even created several sketches and cartoons of Giribaldi's campaign to unify Italy, actually following the revolutionary for parts of his campaigns. Nast returned to the U.S. in February 1861, just as the shit had fully hit the fan. But that is when Nast's story really began, taking a job, the job that would define his career, with Harper's Weekly magazine in 1862. Nast would remain in their employ until 1887. During the Civil War, Thomas Nast illustrated countless moments of the war itself. His sketches of the many great battles and events of the war seem to simultaneously capture the experience of the individual, and thus the hearts and minds of his audience back home. His work was said to inspire everyday people to join or support the cause of the Union. Abe Lincoln himself even noted the importance of Nast's artwork, supposedly saying, quote, Thomas Nast has been our best recruiting sergeant. His emblematic cartoons have never failed to arouse enthusiasm and patriotism and have always seemed to come just when these articles are getting scarce. The pair seemed to see the greatness in each other. Nast was quite the supporter of Lincoln in the election of 1864, helping him gain popular support against George McClellan. When Lincoln was killed, Nast, quote, employed his pencil to illustrate the national mourning for Lincoln. Then he applied it to the national disgust with President Andrew Johnson. Nast would continue to be a force to be reckoned with for presidents to come. His detest for Johnson no doubt fueled the angry and divided populace against him, just as his support for Ulysses S. Grant may have made the hard war hero of the Civil War seem more approachable and honorable, which he really kind of was. Thomas Nast's cartooning legacy is certainly great, but what exactly did he do to leave his mark on American society? During the Civil War, Nast was a Union propaganda machine, and nothing was off-limits. In a desperate attempt to capture a semblance of joy in America's deadliest war, Thomas Nast turned to an old German-Dutch character, something we have actually already discussed on the show, Santa Claus. Now let's be clear, Thomas Nast gets overcredited with a bunch of firsts. The Democratic Donkey, which stretches back to the jackass that was Andrew Jackson, was not created by Nast, nor were Uncle Sam and Lady Columbia Thomas Nast originals. But it was Nast that popularized them to the point that they became household symbols and names. It is even said that Nast gave Uncle Sam his trademark goatee. But he did not invent Santa. He just made him fat. 
How we perceive Santa today is in fact a product of Thomas Nast's mind. Beyond that, it was Nast that put many of these images to use in political satire. Still, Nast's role in popularizing these images to the point that people think he created them is enough a testament to his legacy for this humble podcaster. And jackasses aside, he was quite the master of animals, as can be seen in his elephant and tiger-shaped footprints. Yes, it was Thomas Nast that gave the Republican Party, Lincoln's Party, a symbol in his cartoon circus. It was by Nast's hand that the Republican elephant was born. But the Republican elephant can't just be made up. No, it is much more complicated than that, and as usual, Nast doesn't even deserve all the credit. The Republican elephant has its roots in the Civil War, but not with Lincoln or Nast. Instead, in a phrase, quote, seeing the elephant, which was a popular expression used by soldiers during the Civil War that meant something along the lines of fighting bravely in combat, or more generally speaking, seeing something exotic or apart from the norm. But again, no one knows that fucking phrase, but they know the elephant, and it was Nast that popularized, characterized, and made that elephant mean something to this day. So we have Democratic donkeys and Republican elephants, but what the hell was the tiger about? For that, we must head back to New York. Quite possibly Thomas Nast's greatest accomplishment came about when he turned all his efforts towards bringing down political corruption in the city that he so deeply cherished, as Nast went up against the Tammany Hall political machine. Quick note, in case some of you are like, what the fuck is a political machine? Well, it's basically a political organization with a corrupt boss at the top that used shady voting tactics to get his fellow party members elected. In this case, William Magger Tweed, a minor New York politician, used graft and fraud to get Democrats elected. With government control, he could divvy out favors, building contracts, and more. In one of the most successful examples of the spoil system in U.S. history. Tweed and the so-called ring, or Tweed ring, stole millions of dollars from the New York taxpayers. Hundreds of millions in today's money. And you may be wondering, who would ever vote for these corrupt politicians? Well, there's a couple answers. A, as first-generation Americans, or immigrants themselves, Tweed and others like him were able to feed on their connections to the New York immigrant population. And B, it didn't really matter, they cheated. But let's move back to Nast. At the height of his power, Tweed's corruption went a little too far with people getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's money in just two hours of work. He became the target of the New York Times who exposed his corruption to the masses and nobody really gave a shit. Unlucky for Tweed, his apex corresponded with the peak of Nast influence. In just about every New York household, one could see Nast cartoons hanging on the wall. Yes, it was Thomas Nast who fixed public attention firmly on the Tweed political machine, even giving it a mascot, the Tamney Tiger. Tweed even supposedly tried to bribe the New York Times and Harper's Weekly to stop publication of political cartoons, and one report notes that Nast denied a $3 million personal bribe demanding more money, only to turn down the larger bribe when Tweed actually offered it. Having trouble confirming that last bit, but it's still a fun, very, I don't know, nasty little story. Tweed himself supposedly once said, quote, Stop them damn pictures. I don't care so much what papers say about me. My constituents don't know how to read, but they can't help seeing them damn pictures. Here, Tweed seems to be indicating that it was Nast cartoons that cost him popularity. With that went his power. And in the end, that is what brought ruin to the Tweed ring. Without influence, Tweed lost political allies, and he went down hard. The idea that Nast was the hero of our story was reinforced by the New York Times, too the very magazine that exposed the corruption of the Tweed Ring in the first place, saying, quote, Nast drawings are stuck on the walls of the poorest dwellings and stored away in the portfolios of the wealthiest connoisseurs. 
A man who can appeal powerfully to millions of people with a few strokes of the pencil must be admitted to be a great power in the land. No writer can possibly possess a tenth of the influence with which Mr. Nast exercises. Tweed was arrested, stood trial, and then escaped prison. He fled to Spain by way of Cuba. And there, in his self-imposed exile, Tweed was recognized by locals and arrested by Spanish authorities. He was sent back to the United States, and with no allies, he would spend the rest of his days in a New York jail. And if you're wondering how a Spaniard came to know the face of a no-name politician from New York City, well, that's easy. They recognized his face from one of Thomas Nast's political cartoons. In the 80s, Nast was at the height of his influence and the peak of his career. Funny thing about peaks, though, they tend to be followed by a steady or harsh fall. After some editorial disputes, Thomas Nast left Harper's Weekly magazine in 1886, his last illustration for the publication being his annual Christmas drawings. Holleran does note that Nast's absence was a blow to Harper's Weekly. One Louisville editor of the day even remarked, quote, In quitting Harper's Weekly, Nast lost his forum. In losing him, Harper's Weekly lost its political importance. One can hear Nast's influence in these words. However, Holleran notes, quote, The former is true to a certain extent. The latter, unlikely. Readers may have missed Nast's cartoons, but Harper's Weekly remained influential. Still, Holleran continues, quote, Harper's Weekly would never again boast a more powerful collaboration than they had with the nation's most important political cartoonists. Well, that's it, and way, way longer than I thought it was going to be. Nast's later life was one of surprising failure. Spending all his money to take over the struggling New York Gazette, and with his ego at an all-time high, Nast renamed the periodical Nast Weekly. The business, alongside with some bad investments, would cripple Thomas Nast's finances and reputation. In a bitter twist of irony, Nast actually was the victim of a Ponzi scheme. Luckily for Nast, a true badass and great mind for another day was a huge fan of his political cartoons. So, in 1902, President Theodore Roosevelt himself offered him a job as consul to Ecuador. Within six months of his arrival, however, Nast contracted yellow fever and died. But only after helping dozens of Americans escape his fate, securing their passage out of the struggling country. I don't typically rate governors and matlacks like Thomas Nast on my Another Round content, but if I were to rate Thomas Nast, he would be near the top of the entertainment scale for me. His story is the tale of an immigrant carving out his own unique place in American society, using art not only to convey his opinions but tackle corruption. He may not have been the typical leader we examine on the show, nor did his accomplishments sweep across America or the world with noticeable ramifications, but his popularity did, at the very least, seem to bridge the Atlantic. He accomplished what he set out to do. He left behind a legacy everyone in the world knows, even if they don't know it's about him. He doesn't get a formal rating, but he doesn't deserve to be forgotten. And it doesn't mean that he wasn't a little bit of a piece of shit. In fact, in the later years of his career, despite being a champion of equality, a supporter of Republican leadership when that was seen as a universally good thing, and even an immigrant himself, Tommy Nast was particularly nasty towards the Irish immigrant population of the United States. One truth of immigration in U.S. history, especially European immigration to the USA, is that the definition and inclusiveness of, quote, whiteness seemed to change. Early Americans looked down upon Germans when they first arrived. Germans would do the same to the Irish in the next wave. And the Irish would do the same to my Italian grandfather in the wave after that. As Germans assimilated into American society, they began to target the new, the different, the other. A tragic and oversimplified reality of American history. Beyond that, Nast hated William Maggard Tweed, who was Irish. Nast seemed to have a great degree of distrust for all Irish immigrants, maybe as a result. Not defending him, just noting. All in all, Nast was kinda nasty. But this sangria is certainly not. And it's simple as shit to make. 
Slice some apples, peaches, and oranges, and whatever fucking fruit you want to cut up. Throw it in a pitcher, dump in the wine, a little bit of Sprite, and have a good time. Just be sure to chill it first. I didn't add any sugar to mine, as I was using Sprite and the wine is a little sweeter. And the wine is fine, but I really enjoyed the sangria. This little fruity mix with a dash of Sprite is fantastic, and I won't be judged for making my sangria this way. Despite what we Americans know about sangria and how Spanish we think it is, most Barcelonians that I have chatted with tell me that they actually keep their personal sangrias very sweet and simple. And use Sprite, like this one. But I'm only going to give it 5 points for taste, as I think I could just do a little better next time. However, price was great. Trader Joe's wines are always affordable and tasty, and this bottle of Adelina Verdejo was only $3.99. Perfect price point if you're just going to mix it with a bunch of fruit and diet Sprite. Gotta watch those carbs, because I'm always trying to maintain my figure. Although I did have to go and buy a bunch of fruit, I probably would have done that anyways, so six points for price. And I will definitely be making this again. I never really got into white sangria before, always sticking with traditional red, but this is fantastic. I think next time I might even cross countries and try it with my favorite Portuguese wine, Vina Verde. Six points for a very, very, very likely return in this hot Florida sun and the cooling temperatures of the fall. So my cheap little sangria leaves the show with a near-perfect score of 7 out of 18 points and 6 crowns. Am I biased? Yes. Do I give a shit? No. Well, let's wrap this up. I couldn't really do a month on Tommy Nast. I didn't think I could write a six-page episode on him either, but here we are. But I know I could spend months looking at his political cartoons, and honestly, I do. They never get boring. I always notice new gems hidden deep within them. Nas cartoons are famous, but aside from his tweed takedown, no one really talks much about him. Nast's original 1904 biographer, Albert Bigelow Payne, closes his great work saying, quote, For nearly a quarter of a century, through the pages of Harper's Weekly, Nast gave strength to the American people. Often in the hour of his elevation, he was charged with arrogance, self-assurance, and conceit. Yet these were never his characteristics. I think when the day comes, as it surely will, that men shall raise a tablet in his memory, then reverently we must inscribe upon it Thomas Nast, patriot and moralist, a partisan of the right. Here I think pain means right, as in what was decent and correct. Nast seemed to almost always act with the betterment of American society in mind. His biographer, Payne, worked closely with Nast himself in the writing process, so much so that it was, as Holleran put it, quote, the book represents Nast's life story as Nast himself chose to tell it. Does that matter? Probably. Are Payne's words true? At least a little. Still, Thomas Nast is a representation of the American dream before the American dream was really the American dream. A testament to his legacy and footprint, the Thomas Nast Prize is awarded to accomplished editorial cartoonists that use wit and imagery to tackle wickedness. Nast cartoons are studied in just about every American U.S. history classroom. They are examined and analyzed in just about every single American history unit that took place during his lifetime. It is even said that Nast's cartoons made a president. That is, his work swayed popular opinion in the narrow election of 1884 towards the winner Grover Cleveland. And that's just one example of his involvement and popularity surrounding a presidential election. Yet Nast's name doesn't even appear on that election's wiki page. Sadly, so few leave their secondary schooling with an understanding of his importance, his legacy, or his contribution to political satire. It's kind of a bummer, but what can you do? If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then I hope you'll consider supporting the show. Just follow the link in the show notes to get access to the DGMH Patreon page. Their listeners of all levels can support the show and get access to even more great, relatively raunchy bonus content. 
please help us out by leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Follow the show on Instagram to see the drinking process unfold, and join in the conversation on the DGMH Facebook group. Well, that's it. I say NAST is great. You don't think so? Well, I don't give a shit. Republican or Democrat, corrupt politician or halfway corrupt politician, we pretty much all believed in Santa at one point in our lives. And that Santa was fucking fat. And for that we must thank Thomas Nast. Cheers! Cheers!